0: This is Radio Stockdale. What happens when you get some of the most senior leaders we have to share his or her advice on a one-on-one basis? I'm Michael Sears. I used to brief flag officers as part of my job. Now the tables are turned, and we're letting some of the most senior naval, military, and civilian leaders we have brief us. Welcome to the flag brief. Stay with us. I'm in conversation with Ms. Caitlin Durkovich. She is the Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director of Resilience and Response at the White House National Security Council, NSC. As the Senior Director, Ms. Durkovich is responsible for the advancement of national policies and programs that enhances the resilience of the United States and strengthens the U.S. posture to physical and cyber threats to the nation's critical infrastructure. Welcome, Senior Director Durkovich.
1: Thank you very much Michael for that introduction. It's great to be here with you.
0: I really appreciate you being here. Let's jump right into this thing and let me ask you this. Could you share with us just what your role is at the National Security Council and how does it connect with the National Security Network including the DOD and the Navy and Marine Corps?
1: Thank you for that question. In part because I have somewhat of a unique role here at the National Security Council In that we both work to formulate policy, but also play a very important role in helping to coordinate domestic incident response. Using the platform of the National Security Council to fully leverage the federal government's authorities and capabilities through policy action to deliver a swift and effective response to our communities and to the American people. Um, over the last uh, seven months, I have spent a good portion of my time focused on response. We are you know, presently in, in mid-August of the president's first term, and a number of things have happened, from um, winter storms that impacted the Texas uh, electric grid to two ransomware attacks that both affected our Um, fuel supply chain, the ransomware attack on colonial pipelines, and then on JBS, which impacted food uh, or meat production systems across the world, including here in the United States. Um, We've had eight named uh, storms in addition to a number of other events that we've had to respond to even the unfortunate collapse of the condo complex in Surfside. And so that gives you a sense um, of some of the things that we work on on a regular basis in terms of making sure we really are bringing to bear all the federal government can offer uh, in times of, of need for communities and the American people. The other piece of that, which is more traditional to a NSC directorate, is the policy uh, setting. And we really here in, in Resilience and Response are focused on national response policy to improve our our long-term security and the overall, you know, resilience of our nation's critical infrastructure and our nation's communities. And long-term, we look at the kind of existing policy that we have, uh, and there are a number of presidential policy directives, executive orders that are within our orbit, but we have to evaluate and think about how we need to adjust them to reflect the realities of the changing world and the emergent threats that we have. And we bring the interagency uh, together. And when I say the interagency, Um, That is the relevant departments and agencies who have equities in these policies and are responsible for implementing them to talk about, are they still relevant? Are they still effectuating the desired outcomes that we want? And how do we need to think about modernizing and updating them again, based on the current risk environment and and where we see emergent threats. Um, The connection to the national security enterprise Um, to include DOD and and the Navy and the Marine Corps. Um, As I said, part of our, one of our guiding principles is that when it comes to incident response, the president expects that we will bring all appropriate uh, federal resources to bear. Um, This includes the National Security Network and of course, DOD and and defense support to, to civil authorities. First of all, let me just start by saying that all incidents are local Um, And when they exceed the capacity of a locality or community, the state um, comes in to assist and provide support. And when the state reaches its capacity, it comes to the federal government to ask for additional support. And that takes many forms. Um, We try to deliver a lot of that support from federal departments and agencies. But there are times when uh, those capabilities are also um, reach their limit. And so we have to turn to DOD for help. And it takes um, the, you know, many forms from the Defense Logistics uh, Agency in helping move things to the National Guard, both the state active duty, um, but in a Title X capacity sometimes. Um, we are doing a lot right now around wildland fires uh, in the West. And so we are leveraging uh, DOD and various air components um, to help bring major air assets to the firefighting uh, and the fire suppression uh, capability in addition uh, or response in addition to uh, active duty personnel and other unique capabilities that the Defense Department has imaging um, in infrared that can be used to both um, help identify fire starts, but the perimeters of fire, that's kind of one example. Um, and then clearly, um, we're living this right now. And again, it's it's August uh, of 2021. Haiti has just had a major earthquake. We've got a number of tropical storms that are brewing in the Atlantic and the Caribbean. And again, when you see multiple storms and multiple events and you're having to adjudicate resources, there are often not enough in the normal kind of incident management cache. And so we, we turn to DOD uh, for help. Uh, And in the instances of of hurricanes and earthquakes, it is sometimes uh, hospital ships and helping move supplies to our island communities. It just takes a variety of different uh, forms. And each of the armed services can bring important capability to the table during times of national crisis. The most important thing for me here at the NSC is to be aware of those capabilities Uh, and how they can best be used in each um, situation. Uh, And equally important to understand that there are competing demands and that we may make asks, um, but the response may be unable to fill because the most important thing really is that we do not impact the readiness of our armed forces. And so we need to be judicious uh, in when and how we ask uh, DOD uh, for help.
0: Great answer. Let me ask you this, to push this a little bit. Why is it so important on the world stage for the U.S. to demonstrate its ability to respond to disasters in an efficient and effective manner?
1: Michael, that's a a great question, and I think a particularly timely one uh, now. Um, As you well know, countries have always been measured uh, to some extent by how well they uh, not just prepare for, but more importantly, because the response is so visual, right? But respond, uh, to disasters. And it is a measure of a nation's resilience. And it's why it is so important for the United States uh, to lead by example and to demonstrate that it can um, bring all assets to bear and respond in a timely and efficient uh, manner. When we are um, competing with authoritarian regimes for power and influence, um, and so focused on showing the world that democracy uh, works, whether that's achieving um, a bipartisan agreement for a major infrastructure investment, or effectively and swiftly uh, responding to a disaster and making sure that we are helping citizens in their greatest time of need. Uh, the world watches how we perform. And if we do it well, it is a you know a demonstration. Um, in, in a live example, really, that democracy does work. Uh, and so it's why we focus both on trying to anticipate uh, when we may, you know, have a disaster, or may- dealing with an incident, but also making sure that we are pre-positioning, we are leaning forward, um, and that if, you know, need be, we bring too many things to bear, that's better than not bringing enough. But it is uh, at the end of the day, to sum it up, a very important show that democracy um, that democracy works.
0: Is there international competition for disaster aid? What I mean by that is, is there a great power struggle to provide that aid?
1: Uh, another good question, Michael. And I don't know uh, that I would go as far to say that there is a great power struggle for disaster aid. Uh, but But I think that it emphasizes my earlier point, which is Um, We are competing with, you know, an authoritarian regime, China. Um, We are, you know, also uh, addressing one of, you know, the most significant adversaries of our time, Russia. Um, And we need to show nations that our country uh, and the democratic-based order that we represent uh, offers the best possible future for the world. And the way that we come to the aid and the assistance of other countries in need um, is one of the many ways uh, that we do this. and and let me just step back for a minute and say that I don't think that effective disaster aid is as much about or is it's more than just competition. Uh, it is generally in our in our national interest to help uh, other countries in need and it's the right thing to do. Um, and so, a great example right now, and I mentioned this earlier, is that we this this weekend we had a, a major earthquake in Haiti. It registered 7.2 on the Richter scale. Haiti is is important for us. It promotes regional safety and stability, uh, and we need to help avert a destabilizing crisis there that could cause a, a, a hazardous uh, mass, you know, migration to other parts of the Caribbean. And so it's fundamentally. Um, important from a humanitarian aspect uh, that we are helping the Haitian people at their greatest time uh, and need. And I think one example, again, of how DOD and, you know, the sea services, not necessarily the Navy or um, the Marines have come to aid is that the U.S. Coast Guard, um, Sector 7, in coordination with SOUTHCOM, was the first US disaster aid to arrive in Haiti. That happened, uh, the hurricane happened on a Saturday morning. Um, There were Coast Guard C-130s and other rotary assets on the tarmac at the um, airport in Port-au-Prince by Sunday morning. And the Haitian uh, Prime Minister was so grateful um, for that immediate and swift show of response. And it has really helped pave the way for our continuing assistance um, to them. And so uh, I think that's just an example of it's not a, a competition necessarily. It's the right thing to do for countries, you know, regardless of, of where they are, and we will continue to do it.
0: So the Naval Service has a kinetic role, bombs on target, I think I always like to say, but it's also a task with a humanitarian assistance role internationally. You mentioned Haiti and, and other things, but, you know, California or Western fires, tornadoes in Kansas, hurricanes in Florida... What can all of the resilience and response work you do teach us in the naval service about managing resilience and response?
1: Um, that's a, a, a great question, uh, and I think you know what's important just to think about in the background is that it is really important uh, that that DoD and the and the various services are able to focus on their core mission, right? Which is which is keeping peace through strength and, and fighting and, and winning wars. Um, but the breadth of incidents that you mentioned um, show the challenges that the future um, Navy and Marine Corps officers are going to face uh, in the future. Um, there are a lot of lessons that are learned from domestic incident response, um, not just the hazard um, themselves, but really how increasingly Uh, disaster response requires a team effort. Uh, And when you look at how we handle domestic incident response, uh, we have to work together across federal, state, local, tribal, territorial governments, and sometimes international, frankly, um, to effectively respond during a disaster. Um, We coordinate uh, with the private sector, with nonprofits, with community organizations to prepare for and respond to these events. And so I think I think one important principle is that really to be effective in response, you need to leverage all of the, the assets and the partners um, that that you can bring to bear and that a effective response is really one that is whole of community, not just whole of government, but whole of community. And so how do you cast that net and really understand um, the partners that can can participate in this and what unique capabilities or how you know, how they can um, enhance other capabilities that they can bring to the table. The other thing that I will say, and I have, you know, this is reinforced every every time we go through some sort of uh, disaster is that nothing um, goes as planned, period, hands down, and no plan survives contact. Uh, and so you may think that you've, you know, got a, a process or a plan for how you're going to handle a particular incident and the way things are going to work. And, you know, something will throw a monkey wrench in it and you need contingencies. And I can, you know, point to, you know, numerous things that have happened even in the first six months of this uh, administration, but you know, I'll point to the, the colonial pipeline incident. You know, we believed in the early hours of the ransomware attack and the company actually, you know, shut the pipeline down to make sure that the ransomware didn't migrate over into the pipeline. Um, We, you know, we believed based on what the company was telling us that they would be able to get the pipeline back up and running within 24 to 48 hours. Well, it was the first time in history that this 55,000 mile pipeline had ever been shut down in its entirety and turning on um, or or restarting a pipeline isn't just like flicking a light switch, right? There's a lot of complexity Uh, that goes into it. And it took the the better part of a week to get most of the pipeline up and running, which is what started to cause some of the fuel um, supply issues in addition to there being a a run on on gas. And so uh, as you plan for response, or you make any plan, right, you need to think through um, all of the possible contingencies and way things are going to go awry. And there is no scenario that is too crazy. I will tell you, if if, if it can happen, if you can imagine it, it can happen. And I think that it's important um, when you're doing these things to make sure that you have people who are, whether they're playing the the devil's advocate, um, but who don't come with the kind of biases and assumptions that most planners do uh, enable and are able to kind of red team how you're approaching things. So you go into situation eyes wide open, and prepared to pivot as needed.
0: You know, I'm always amazed at the writing that Hollywood uh, writers and producers are able to create. But in fact, most of that stuff is out of history
1: and out of real world situations. Absolutely. And in fact, before coming back into government, I worked for a foresight firm, where as we helped companies and government organizations prepare for the future, one of the inputs that we used uh, were Hollywood writers, right, in addition to historians and journalists and other inputs. But I think it is important to have a cell or a capability, but where you are drawing on folks with, with a different type of imagination, you know, who have the ability to, I don't want to say predict the future, but to paint where we could be going. And, and it's helpful in how we do strategic planning uh, and foresight activity here in government.
0: Really good point. Now, you touched on this earlier about critical infrastructure with the critical infrastructure in Texas that failed this last uh, winter, increasing vulnerabilities across sectors for cyber attacks. Yeah. How can we improve resilience in our systems and, and what should DOD and the Navy's role in these efforts be?
1: Uh, that's a great question. And just I think generally... Um, we as a nation uh, need to come together and have a, a conversation about resilience, uh, because the world that we are living in is, you know, far more complex and um, one perhaps that we never could have imagined twenty or thirty years ago when we were drafting and promulgating some of the policy that's the foundation for what we do right now. But I think also recent events have underscored how interconnected and interdependent um, we are and that are we are no longer kind of bounded by our shores. And that's both when you think about um, supply chain, but also in terms of insulating us from foreign threats. So I keep referring to the colonial pipeline and the JBS hacks, and that made abundantly clear to all of us, how we can be attacked from anywhere in the world and it can have very physical consequences here. Also, our increased digital connectivity, which is creating tremendous efficiencies, has introduced vulnerabilities as well. And so uh, I think that's the the first thing is that we need to recognize that we are highly um, interdependent and on other functions, on other sectors. Uh, and as we plan for our continuity, we need to elevate our baseline and really think about, all right, how can we anticipate, given this interconnectedness, where we might have challenges? It's not just a disruption to us, right, an attack on us. But if somebody attacks uh, where we get our power from or cuts fiber lines, um, what are going to be the impacts uh, to us and how are we going to mitigate it and bounce back? Um, so, you know, this anticipatory piece requires thinking about the both your dependencies and interdependencies, um, but also the first and second order effects of when there is a disruption to someone that you're dependent on. And I think that moving forward, in addition to having a response plan that that accounts for that, we have to think about Um, how we design our systems and our plans with a primary benefit in mind, but also understanding that we have blind spots and that we have vulnerabilities, um, especially given the highly kind of efficient interconnected ecosystem uh, that I talked about. And, And we need to keep those in mind as we implement and execute, right? And not become complacent and make sure that we are always accounting foreign thinking through where our dependencies on things could actually have uh, significant consequences to how we operate and whether that's on a ship at a base, you name it, right? Um, there is stuff outside the wire that if that is, if disrupted, can have significant impact um, on operations and, and on missions. And so that applies to the private sector. It applies to military. It applies to the federal government and so that focus on on mission resilience uh and and understanding that ecosystem is really important
0: i like the fact that you mentioned the ecosystem let me ask you the same question you know how can we improve our resilience but now let's let's bounce that against climate change and how that affects your job your role our role as we go forward
1: that's a very timely question uh and in some ways my answer uh, is, is going to be the same. Um, I will say that, you know, as, as we are all aware, scientists have been forecasting climate change for, for some time. I think we are living, there is living proof now about how acute of a challenge it is. Uh, I pen a, a, a memo for the president every morning on extreme weather and the number of times that we are talking about uh, excessive heat um, in heat waves through the West and, and frankly, across the United States um, and these conditions and whether it is um, the heat, whether it is the drought, um, they are then exacerbating other hazards. And so what used to be in wildland fires is, is a great example, right? Um, what used to be a fire season has become kind of a perennial thing. We are fighting fires almost continuously here in, in the United States And we are seeing this with storms too, right? Longer storm seasons, more extreme and and fast moving storms, more, you know, 500 year storms every five years. Uh, And so um, it it has a a significant um, impact on how we not just respond, but you have to think about in the context of your mission and how you operate. And when you think about, the Navy and the Marine Corps and 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 there's a lot of different ways that you can take it. But um, you know, Navy (laughs) Navy installations are on the water, right? And we have rising sea levels. And we know that in Norfolk, for example, Virginia, you know, this is a, a, a town and a base that is underwater in the best of times. Um, but that we worry about if we have a major uh, hurricane that moves up the east Coast that you're going to see significant um, storm surge uh, that will not just impact the infrastructure but but frankly operations. And I was actually down in um, Williamsburg a few weeks ago and they had a high water mark. There were two large storm surges. One was from Irene, and I think the other was from Sandy. And I think the Irene storm surge, Oh, it's Isabel. was was twelve feet, and it is amazing to see what twelve feet uh, means in, in reality and the you know the damage that it had to this particular place that I was at. Um, so it it affects installations, right, and bases, and and that's Navy, Marine, Coast Guard. It's something the Coast Guard is is dealing with. Um, it also just affects how our officers, are our, our enlisted men the, the, and women, the conditions in which they're operating. And I don't mean to keep going back to the wildland fire, but it's the thing that's most front and center right now. It's one thing to be fighting fires when it's 90 degrees. It's a, a different thing to be fighting fires when it's 110 and 115 degrees. And it's so hot that these storms are creating their own weather systems and not just additional heat, but lightning strikes and things. And so when you think about our frontline personnel and, um, you know, they're, uh, you know, whether you're at, a, at an installation or out on the water and you're, you know, in this extreme heat, it just impacts how your assets function, the uniforms you need to wear, the, how you hydrate, how you run shifts, like there's very real operational impacts. Um, And then it also, you know, changes the threat environment. And we've seen this in the, in the Middle East. We're seeing this um, even in, in South and Central America. Right. And there's political reasons too, but drought creating famine and um, these groups leaving their home countries and migrating North to where it's cooler, which creates a a whole new set of, of homeland and national security challenges. So um, climate change is very real, and I think um, this is the one of the, if not the greatest threat um, that we, as a national security organization entity, will be dealing with in the coming um, in the coming decade.
0: Great discussion so far. Let's shift it a little bit as we wind it up, and let me ask you who the partners are for naval officers going forward with regard to other agencies, uh, both state and federal who are these folks? Where do these players, civilian players come from?
1: That's a great question. And and I think there are a number of different groups that Naval officers will be partnering with. I mean, I think the top line message here is that you need to be prepared to partner um, and to build relationships uh, with almost every type of civilian leader, uh, whether at the federal level, at the state, Um, local and even tribal and and territorial governments. And and frankly, international partners, when you think about what's happening in Haiti, um, for example, you never know where you're gonna be activated and deployed to um, And the ability to understand the perspective of each of these different groups and what their needs are and how um, the structures work is, is really important. And somebody coming from a federal perspective is very different. Uh, than somebody coming from a territorial or or, or a local perspective. And so I think it's important that you understand um, each of of them. When you talk about at the federal level and response and resilience, I think the key partners are really the Federal Emergency Management Agency, um, which is one of the components of the Department of Homeland Security. There's also the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure uh, Security Agency that is the home to both the federal and the dot .gov or, or the dot .gov and the um, civilian cybersecurity mission as well as the infrastructure protection uh, mission. Um, I think that th- those would be the two key ones within DHS. Um, but it you know it depends, and, and when you're doing humanitarian response. To a country like Haiti, for example, you'll be interacting with USAID and the Department of State and the embassies that are on the ground. And so, you know, I think that if you bring um, some key principles to how you think about partnering and relationships, which is uh, listening, coming with the, the belief that, that the federal government or, or you don't always have the right answer, <laughs> um and that there may be others that have a better way of doing it and being open uh, and and letting go of your biases um, and coming with an attitude that that let's figure out if we need to do something differently just because we've been doing it for 10 years but it may make this way for 10 years and it may make sense to do it differently that you're open to that and that you know your job is either to figure out how to make it happen or to clear the underbrush so others can make it happen. And I think that if there's that um, sense of, of collaboration um, and, and, and camaraderie and we're all in it together and there's you know, no one way to do something, um, the goal is just to get it done efficiently and safely so we are bringing assistance to bear as quickly as possible, that, that will go a long way. There are probably three points I would make on that. Um, one is that you have in the, in, in the emergency management community, you have a number of professionals who graduate college and may go to work uh, at the local or state level in emergency management um, and may eventually um, work their way into the federal system. Um, the second piece of this is that and this is more broadly for the homeland security community, we see a lot of people who come out of state and local law enforcement, state and local fusion centers uh, and and frankly even the FBI ATF Secret Service, um, federal law enforcement, and then start kind of a second career in the National Security Council or doing homeland security work. And that's very true at, at DHS, right? There are a number of folks who've had that kind of first career and then come in at a more senior level doing the, the homeland security work. Um, you know, I think from a regional perspective, which is probably less applicable, that's more of the traditional. Um, you get your undergrad, you get your master's um or your PhD, you go work in think tanks, you spend some time in government, um, you go work in think tanks, and then you come back to government, right? That's that's a pretty traditional career path. And then I'll just end um, with, with me because I think it's also instructive of what you will see is that I didn't graduate from college thinking that I would become a government executive focused on critical infrastructure, security and resilience and response. It was this very circuitous route that started with the boom of the internet. And it took me into cybersecurity, which then took me into more disaster response, humanitarian stuff. I did some pandemic work in early 2005. It all kind of teed me up for... 2009, when a position became available at DHS and what is the predecessor to the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency. Uh, And I, you know, spent eight years there um, and learned a lot and met a lot of partners in the interagency. And so when I stepped into this role here at the National Security Council, you know, I had a, a strong network, but also more importantly, a very Good appreciation for how both government works, how you formulate policy, and how you bring um, different constituents—in this case, federal departments and agencies—together to achieve a, a policy aim. So, I don't think there's one answer. We don't have as much of the schoolhouse mentality here on on this side on the disaster and incident response side. So, you're going to see a lot of you know a lot of different. But I will tell you. Um, the emergency management incident response community is the most dedicated. Uh, I shouldn't say most is, is one of the most um, dedicated professions that I, that I have seen and they, and they take their job very seriously, which is, you know, as the president likes to say about fire, um, firefighters um, that at a time when, you know, people are trying to evacuate or run from, from fires um, and disasters, you know, the emergency management community um, is headed to them to go help people in their time of need. Very similar to Navy and, and Marine Corps.
0: Senior Director Caitlin Durkovich, thank you very much for joining us on the Flag Brief.
1: Thank you, Michael.
0: You've been listening to The Flag Brief, a series of conversations with senior officers and civilian officials. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of our podcasts at StockdaleCenter.com slash podcasts.